how do pastors learn to preach? First, you need some schooling. Then you need an absolute ton of practice. Fred Craddock's job as a professor was to teach pastors how to preach. Near the end of his career, he was asked to give a lecture at Yale Divinity School. In that sermon, he told the story of going back one summer to Gatlinburg, Tennessee, to take a short vacation with his wife in the summer of 1950 to show her where he had grown up. One night, they found a quiet little restaurant where they looked forward to a private meal, just the two of them. While they were waiting for their meal, they noticed a distinguished-looking white-haired man moving from table to table, visiting guests. Craddock whispered to his wife, oh, I hope that guy doesn't come over here. He didn't want the man to intrude on their privacy, but the man did come by his table. Where are you folks from, he asked amicably. Oklahoma. Splendid state, I hear, although I've never been there. What do you do for a living? I teach homiletics at the Graduate Seminary of Phillips University. Oh, so you teach preachers, do you? Well, I got a story I want to tell you. And with that, the distinguished gentleman, who would have been close to 80 years of age, pulled up a chair, sat down at the table with Craddock and his wife. Dr. Craddock said he groaned inwardly. Oh, no. Here comes another preacher's story. It seems everyone has one. The man stuck out his hand. I'm Ben Hooper. I was born not from here, far from here, across the mountains. My mother wasn't married when I was born. So I had a really hard time of it. When I started school, my classmates had a name for me. It wasn't a very nice nickname. I used to go up by myself at recess and during lunchtime because the taunts of my playmates cut so deeply. What was worse was going downtown on Saturday afternoon into town and feeling every eye burning a hole through you. They were all wondering just who my real father was. When I was about 12 years old, a new preacher came to our church. I would always go in early and in late and slip out early. But one day the preacher said the benediction so fast, I got caught and had to walk out with the crowd. I could feel every eye in church on me just about the time I got to the door. I felt a big hand on my shoulder. I looked up and the preacher was looking right at me. Who are you, son? Whose boy are you? I felt that old weight come on me. It was like a big black cloud thought to myself, even the preacher was putting me down. But as he looked down at me, studying my face, he began to smile, a big smile of recognition. Wait a minute, he said. I know who you are. I see the family resemblance. You are a son of God. With that, he slapped me on the back and said, boy, you've got a great inheritance. Go and claim it. The old man looked across the table at Fred Craddock and said, that was the most single important sentence ever said to me. With that, he smiled, shook the hands of Craddock and his wife, moved on to another table to greet old friends. Suddenly, Fred Craddock remembered reading in the history book that back in 1911, big news story was that the people of Tennessee had elected an illegitimate, a man who didn't know who his father was, to be their governor. That man's name was Ben Hooper. Our sermon today is entitled, Jesus Loved His Dad. Now, the interesting thing is that Jesus traveled the same path as Ben Hooper. As Jesus grew up, people wondered who his true father was. They would whisper and guess. What none of them could imagine was that his father was Almighty God, creator of the heavens and earth. Just like Ben Hooper, Jesus had a great inheritance, and he did go claim it. Not for something small, like being the governor of one American state, but be to be the savior 
of the entire world. Jesus and his heavenly Father had an incredible relationship. And that is what we are going to explore today. If you have a print Bible, you can turn it to John chapter 10. Let's go to the two-thirds mark and keep flipping back towards the back. You can also start the Ocean View app or follow along on the screen. John chapter 10, verses 14, 15, and verse 30. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know my Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I and the Father are one. My first point's entitled, The Closeness of the Father-Son Relationship. That relationship, that father-son dynamic that we see between God the Father and God the Son, Jesus, is the foundational pattern for all of our relationships. The closeness between Jesus and his heavenly Father was a source of courage and power for Jesus, no matter what he faced. We just read that Jesus knows his sheep and they know him. Sheep in these verses being anyone who follows him. So that is many of us here this morning. In the same way, Jesus knows his Father, and his Father knows him. Bible scholar William Hendrickson is very helpful in understanding what Jesus is saying. What Jesus states in these verses cannot mean that the fellowship which is found on earth between good shepherd and sheep is just as close as is that which is found in heaven between Father and the Son. But that the former is patterned after is a reflection of the latter. That's what I want us to explore this morning. Just in case you think I'm making a whole case about the closeness between Jesus and his heavenly Father based on a couple of verses, listen to these. Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Or John 14, verses 10 and 11. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. And lastly, John 10, 38. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. The incredible closeness of that father-son relationship comes pouring out of those verses. Some tell the closeness we can hardly imagine. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. What does that mean? We can't fully understand the closeness of God the Son Jesus and God the Father without at least a brief discussion of the Trinitarian nature of God. Whoa, those are some big words. What are you talking about, Pastor Darren? Well, God exists and has revealed himself to us as the three in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, separate in their person, but one in their essence. You see it in the verses that we've been reading. Clearly, Jesus, God the Son, is not the same person as God the Father. If they were, then no relationship is possible. There needs to be another. At the exact same time, John 10.30 that we read makes that bold claim, I and the Father are one. The reality that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all one God was first given a name in the third century by an influential Christian teacher by the name of Tertullian. 
That name that he gave them is the Trinity. Here is how Tertullian defined the persons of the Trinity. God is one substance or essence, and God is three persons. God is one substance in three persons. Here's an extremely important point to grasp. Jesus' original followers, the 11 disciples and Matthias who was chosen to replace Judas, these guys and the other people in the early church, the writers of the four accounts of Jesus' life, they didn't sit around one day and say, hey, let's think up a really confusing concept and write that down. It'll keep everyone busy talking about it for the next 2,000 plus years. That's not how it happened. These were all good Jewish people. They had believed since birth and regularly repeated the words of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then, is, then Jesus comes along and they become his followers. They see Jesus do things only God can do. Jesus forgives people's sins. Jesus creates brand new matter, like turning water into wine and multiplying five loaves and two fish. Jesus has the power of the natural world, which he demonstrated when he calmed a raging storm and walked on water. Jesus taught with unparalleled wisdom and authority. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God and to be one in essence with him. And then, if there were any doubts at all, Jesus was raised from the dead, first person in history to be resurrected. So they said, all right, okay, God the Father is clearly God. Now we know that God the Son is also God. But then Jesus said, don't go on mission until the Holy Spirit of God comes upon you in power. That happened in Jerusalem one spectacular day called Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit came down as visible tongues of flame danced over the heads of those early disciples. Gave them the ability to speak in different languages to everyone gathered there from all over the Roman Empire. But all those foreigners understood their proclamations about Jesus in their own language. Throughout the rest of their lives, the early church experienced the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So they said, okay, apparently the Holy Spirit is God as well. So the concept of the Trinity wasn't dreamt up as the apostles sat around a dinner table. It was written down from what they experienced. It's a key point to grasp. Now, for the last 2,000 years, the Christian faith has proclaimed that truth. God is one in essence, but separate in person. Now, here's the point for us today. Jesus is modeling for us the perfect father-son relationship. That's our first step this morning. Simply spend a couple moments thinking or contemplating the closeness of the perfect father-son relationship and try to understand it as best as we human beings can. That model forms the basis for our most important relationships. Now we move from the nature of the relationships to the action within the relationship. We're going to pick it up in verses 17 and 18 of John chapter 10. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. And then in verse 38, Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I 
in the Father. My second point's entitled, The Honor Shown Between the Father and Son. Jesus the Son honors the Father, and the Father honors the Son. That mutual respect and lifting each other up comes through loud and clear in those verses we just read. So what are fathers and kids supposed to learn out of this? Fathers, are you honoring your children? My girls are 9 and 11, and I'm figuring out the unique personalities and the ways that God has wired them up. My one daughter is a verbal processor. processor. She has to tell you everything going on in her head. She does this. It all gets processed and makes sense to her. Now, I honor her in those moments by listening. I dishonor her when I pretend to listen and really watch Sportsnet for the Jays and 30 baseball recap. My other daughter is an internal processor and thinker. I honor her when I give her some time and space to think things through. I dishonor her when I crank up the music and be wild and crazy dad in those moments. My youngest daughter has a strong love language of time spent with. If I don't attempt to play Barbies with her or play baseball in the backyard or join in with their stretching routines, this is their newest awful thing that they get me to do. They're super flexible because they're in dance, and now they're getting me to try and do the splits with them. I can only go so far. Then it's no girls. Daddy's going to be in the hospital. So, but if I don't take time to do those things, then I'm not taking time to honor her love language. My oldest daughter is incredibly artistic. If I sit down and take time to see her latest work of art and have her explain it to me, then I'm honoring her love language. If I cruise by and say, no, no, I'm too busy, then I dishonor her. Fathers and grandfathers this morning, you know your kids. You know your grandkids. You know how God's made them, how he's wired them up. So ask yourself, are you honoring them or dishonoring them? Now, for every son and daughter here today, are you honoring your father? Elementary school kids, what happens when your dad gets home from work? Is the first word out of your mouth a complaint? Dad, my, my sister stole my fidget spinner. Make her give it back. You know what you've done to your dad's blood pressure at that moment? Not yet. Now, let's turn that around. What if your dad comes home and you say, Hey, Dad, you look thirsty. Can I get you a glass of water? Maybe a can of Coke? Your dad will be amazed, possibly even wondering if you're after a raise in your allowance. You can say, I just want to honor you, Dad. Teenagers, what happens when your dad gets home? If you're an average teen, you probably ignore him because you're texting your friend. Or when he says hi, you just kind of grunt. <clears throat> Why don't you shock the pants off your dad the next time by jumping up and saying, Hey, Dad, tell me the best part of your day. Jesus modeled honoring the Father, and in turn, God the Father honored His Son. We need to follow that example. Now we come to the final part of our verses. In these six short verses, Jesus says before it ever happened, what His sacrificial death on a cross would accomplish. Let's pick it up in John chapter 10, verses 25 to 30. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, 
who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus was responding to the incredibly frustrating question by his skeptics and haters. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus sees right through them, however. The problem isn't a lack of information. The problem for these skeptics is a lack of belief in who he was. So Jesus' first piece of evidence is, the works I do in my Father's name testify about me. Jesus is essentially saying, newsflash, folks. Remember the time I healed the blind guy? Remember the time I healed the paralyzed guy and forgave his sins? Remember the time when I brought the Roman centurion's daughter who had died? I brought her back to life? Those are my credentials. Jesus then builds on that. He says, but you don't believe. Not because you haven't seen any miracles, but because you refuse to follow me. You refuse to put any faith in me. There are those who are putting their faith in me, or they are the ones I call my sheep. You know, Jesus makes that amazing claim. I am the good shepherd. Bible scholar John Marsh in his book, St. John, helps us understand the implications of that. He said, goodness is the character and quality of Jesus' rule. Others may lord it over people as they govern. He has come to be a servant and ultimately lay down his life. Why do the sheep respond so well to the good shepherd? It's because of his goodness. Everybody likes a king, a prime minister, a president, if they are good. Goodness is what attracts us and keeps us. Jesus says, in fact, my greatest act of goodness is coming up. I will purchase a restored relationship with God by the sacrifice of my own life. They will have eternal life in the presence of God, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, the one you claim to follow, but in fact turns out to be the one I am incredibly close to and know so well. God the Father has a tight hold on my sheep, my followers. And since you are fighting me on this, I must know the Father and I are one in our essence. That statement was enough to make a large number of them pick up stones to throw rocks at his head until he was dead. Jesus is saying anyone can claim to be anything, but the proof is in the works. The proof's in the pudding. All throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus continually leaving to go spend time alone in prayer with his heavenly Father. He is asking for guidance strength, and power. We see Jesus' greatest accomplishments, his death and resurrection accomplished through the power of his Father. Well, we've gone through some deep waters this morning. I've taken you through some tough ground. But interestingly enough, we as frail and flawed sons and daughters and fathers, we follow a similar pattern. It is because of the strength and support of our close family relationships we were able to accomplish things in life. My own father, Jack, has had an incredible effect on my life. He taught me how to work. All throughout my life, he modeled for me that an amazing work ethic, what it means to buckle down, work hard. What I am today is because of his training and modeling and support. Plus a whole lot of lectures about the value of hard work that it kind of rolled my eyes at as a teenager, but now I've fully come to appreciate well, we started out this morning by hearing the story of Ben Hooper, who went from the shame of not knowing who his father was to being elected the governor of Tennessee. We have examined how Jesus' own parentage was questioned by those around him. 
But he knew who his father was and modeled what a perfectly close father-son relationship is like. Hopefully today we walk away both knowing some deeper truths about the nature of the God we worship, but also inspired in our own relationships this Father's Day. Let's pray.